Welcome back to the Our Voices podcast. I'm Freddie Stewart. Lawrence Ham is the chairman of the People's Organisation for Progress, an independent, community-based association of citizens working for racial, social and economic justice, which he founded in 1983. For the last 35 years, Ham has fought for progressive politics on the local level in New Jersey. He was the state co-chair of the Jesse Jackson presidential campaign in 1988, the president of the New Jersey Rainbow Coalition, and then the coordinator of the Malcolm X Commemoration Coalition. He was also the state chair for the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2020. Ham is now running for a Senate seat in New Jersey against incumbent Democrat Cory Booker, who ran for the presidency earlier this year. That primary election will happen on July 7th. In this interview, we asked Lawrence about his life as an activist, his involvement in the Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns, and how he views the unprecedented nature of the Black Lives Matter movements we're seeing today. But we began by asking him to tell us about himself, about his early years in politics, and about his inspirations growing up. Well, I didn't come from a politically active household. Um, came from a regular working class family. My father was a truck driver. My mother was a seamstress who worked literally around the corner in the cleaners. As a child, I wasn't privy to all their conversations, so I don't know how much politics they discussed, but I have no memories of going to meetings and demonstrations in the early years. I think the first time, I think the seeds of my political consciousness came from my mother. My father passed away when I was four. She gave me a basic sense of right and wrong, of fairness. And then in the early 1960s, it was a common practice to send kids down south for the summer. So I used to go uh, to Georgia from where my folks were from. And I remember when we got on the train, this might've been 1960, 61. We got on a train that still runs called the Silver Meteor. It's an Amtrak train that runs up and down the East Coast. And we got on in Newark. There was no problem. When we got to Washington, DC, the nation's capital, the conductor came to us and told us we had to move to the rear of the train. I had asked my parents why. They didn't explain it immediately, but later on it was explained to me that when you pass through Washington, you cross the Mason-Dixon line and the laws of segregated travel came into effect. So that was an experience. And then the rebellions of uh, uh, the rebellion in Newark of 1967, which I literally watched from my doorstep. I mean, we sat on the porch in July of 67 and literally watched things go up in flames all around us. And I asked my grandfather why this was going on. I was about 12 at the time. And he, he started by talking about his experience in the military. He fought in World War I. And he was saying when he went to France, that when they went into the town, now he went to France to help the French fight against the Germans. This is World War I. And um, he said the French people asked him if they could see his tail because, you know, these racist stereotypes were all over the world. And, you know, that was an experience. And, and then, you know, when I was a senior in high school, well, even before, I guess everything really came to a head in 67. When I started high school, arts high school, we had a freshman orientation. You know, that's when the 
faculty and staff all come speak to the students, all the students to begin a school year. So they asked the student government president at that time, this was the fall of 1967 to speak. They told him to speak about the city council and he came up to the podium and he started talking, but he started talking about the war in Vietnam. I didn't even know where Vietnam was. And uh, the principal told him, don't talk about the war in Vietnam. And he kept talking about the war in Vietnam. And the first week of school, right in front of us, the principal and the student government president get into a fight on the stage because the principal was trying to drag the student government president away from the podium so he wouldn't talk about the war in Vietnam. So these were some things that helped formulate my consciousness. And I led my first action of civil disobedience as a senior at Arts High School, walk out over educational conditions. And we had a walk out at Arts High. We marched down uh, to where the Board of Education, the school board was meeting. And we had a sit-in down there, and that was in my senior year. And I would say from that point on, I've been active uh, ever since, you know. Uh, I was appointed to the Newark School Board at the age of 17. I'm probably still holding the record for the youngest fully voting school board member in the United States. After that um, walkout in uh, 1971, March of 1971, uh, the mayor asked me to sit on the Board of Education. And I agreed and I was sworn in on July 1st, 1971. I served for three years on the school board. That definitely politicized me. I became very close to Amiri Baraka, the poet. This is the father who since passed away. Uh, the poet, the playwright, the actress. His son is now mayor of Newark, Ross Baraka. But he and I became quite close. And I credit him with a lot of my, for lack of another word, theoretical education. And I credit Mayor Gibson, who appointed me to the school board both, both of them together helped, you know, shape my political, my early political consciousness. You mentioned that at the start, the, uh, the, the protest in Newark in uh, 1967, and obviously in Detroit as well. And today we're in a moment of mass mobilizations, the Black Lives Matter campaign and protests seeing in every state across the United States. I wondered if yes. you could speak a little bit to in your, you know, vast experience campaigning for social justice, um, how unique the moment we're in today is and how you see it in line with that history of the, of the 20th century that you just outlined. The moment in it, this is one man's opinion. <laughs> the moment in and it of itself to me is not unique. What is unique about the situation, because there have been mass mobilizations before around horrific incidents of police brutality. I mean, uh, in New Jersey, there was mass mobilization around the murder of Earl Faison uh, in the Orange Police Station, but that didn't get like national headlines. But the beating of Rodney King did. There were demonstrations all over the country in the 90s when Rodney King was beating. Uh, when Abner Louima was tortured in Brooklyn, that sparked nationwide protests. When Amadou Diallo was killed, that sparked nationwide protests. But to me, what is special about this latest upsurge is the speed at which these protests have happened. In the other situations, it took a while for the fire to catch on and spread across the nation. I mean, George Floyd was killed at the end of, basically around the end of May. And within what, two weeks, 
There have been almost 400 protests in all 50 states. Here in New Jersey, we had the first big protest for Floyd on May 30th. The People's Organization called the protest in Newark that brought out 12,000 people, according to the New York Times, probably the largest demonstration uh, in Newark we've ever had. And since May 30th, today is what? July, the, I mean, excuse me, June the 12th. Um, there have been over 140 protests, protests in 140 cities and towns. So the speed at which this thing has happened and the decentralized character, the fact that not, not 10, not 20, not 30, over 140 protests here in New Jersey within what, two weeks? And in different towns and cities. So those two things to me are the distinguishing features of this particular mass upsurge. My main concern is this, that I hope that the people who have planned and executed these things will have an understanding that it can't just be one protest. It may take until November for them to even bring Chauvin to a trial. And then the trial could go on for months. So this is gonna be a protracted struggle. My advice to those who would receive it <laughs> would be to pace yourselves and plan ongoing events, but do so in a way that you can sustain. If you're an organization that doesn't have a lot of resources and people power, then maybe one demonstration a month. But that's good. If you have one demonstration a month for 12 months, that's a lot. If you're a stronger organization and you can do something once a week, do that. And then if you're an organization like the People's Organization for Progress or other organizations, and you can do something every day, do that. But do what you can sustain, what you can keep doing over the long haul. Another real concern of the protests is that we might see uh, is the law and order kind of reaction. And I know that mm -hmm. in 1968, you saw the election of Nixon, mm -hmm. who very much mm -hmm. ran and a counter reaction to the civil rights movement. So how, right. how concerned are you that what we're going to see right now is going to be met with an increased use of, of, of a white supremacist response and even a draconian kind of military, heightened military presence as well? Well, we've already seen evidence of that, right? In certain states, they've already called out the National Guard. Um, in certain places, we've had white supremacist incidents. They, I don't know what it is about cars. They like to drive cars into crowds. You know, they killed Heather Heyer a couple of years ago and they just, one of these Klan uh, leaders drove a car through a group of protesters the other day. And even a police person did it in New York. Um, so we are going to see a heightened response. We're gonna see heightened repression but people should not be beaten into submission. We must have protests. Do not stop the protests. Stay in the streets, but do it in a planned and organized way. And most importantly, in a way that can be sustained. You know, if you have a protest every day for the next 30 days and then your people are worn out and they don't want to protest no more, that's a loss. It's better to do it a few times a month and keep people going for 12 months than to do it every day for 30 days and burn people out. 
we, ha we must have sustained protests and they must be planned and they must be organized. And you must expect the reaction, the police, military, and not just the response of law enforcement or of white supremacists, but the political war that's waged again. Every day, you know, they're waging a propaganda war against us. I mean, if, if we weren't in this particular struggle around George Floyd, you know, they send a message every day that protest is futile. <laughs> you know, why are you protesting? And, and we get that from people around us, you know, people who are close to us. It's not going to make a difference. Don't, don't become subject. Don't let yourself uh, be demobilized. Understand that the war is also on a psychological level, that there are, there are analysts and pundits and writers and people of all opinion, makers of all kinds who every day try to get people not to fight back in a thousand and one different ways. So we have to be hip to that, you know, understand that there is a psychological war going on and we have to strengthen ourselves mentally and, and be prepared for the ebb. The struggle has an ebb and flow. It's like the coming in and out of the tides or the overflowing of the banks of a river during certain times of year. In response to incidents of police brutality and other horrific things, you get a mass, a spontaneous mass outpouring. And it's wonderful, it's euphoric. You know, we get high off of it in, in ways, right? But then it goes away. It doesn't last forever. And whereas you call the demonstration with little effort and a thousand people come out, now you're working your butt off to get less than a hundred people to come out. But don't be dismayed. Uh, don't be deterred by that. That's the natural cycle. You know, the struggle doesn't go in a straight line. You know, it, it rises, it dips, it ebbs, it flows, it zigzags, and sometimes it reverses. But you got to stay the course and be consistent and don't be discouraged. Right. And I know if anyone is looking for an example of consistent, sustainable protest, obviously you've been doing these Justice Monday protests in, in New Jersey, in New York, yes. um, you know, for almost two years now to protest police violence. And that's admirable work that you've been doing. I'd like to turn a little bit now to maybe yes. the, the political outlet for policy solutions potentially in the future. But also I'd like to speak a little bit about the past. And you were the, I think I'm right, the state chair for Bernie 2020. Yes. And you were also a co-chair of Jesse Jackson's campaign yes. back when he ran in the 80s. I wondered if you could speak yes. a little bit to the connection you see between those two movements and how Bernie Sanders represents maybe the newer or the old version of, of the same movement. Well, I would say this. All political movements have a left, a right, and a center. And even within political parties, you have a left, right, and center, even within radical organizations. I know it may be hard for some people to grasp, but there's a left, there's a right, and there's a center. And there's always been a kind of left, I would say liberal to progressive uh, uh, faction within the Democratic Party. And this, there have been various attempts over the years uh, for this party to uh, rise to the surface, so to speak. Uh, for most of the, the period, uh, since the election of Roosevelt, it's 
for the well since, since the end of World War II after Roosevelt for the most part the establishment and corporate Democrats have maintained control but there have been efforts at campaigns to break through that represent a more liberal or progressive point of view that was the case with Jesse Jackson in 1988 and um, it was also not only an expression of the kind of more liberal point of view or liberal wing in the Democratic Party, but it was also an expression of black political power. Uh, black people who had, you know, at one time couldn't be in the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party had been the party of the Confederacy, believe it or not. You know, it was the party of the Ku Klux Klan. It's funny how things turn into their opposites over time. You know, the, the Republican Party was the party of Lincoln that prosecuted the Civil War, that broke the back of the slaveocracy in the South. But somewhere along the line, probably beginning in the 1930s with the, with the uh, uh, Depression of 29 and, and on into 30, and then the election of Roosevelt and his proposal for a New Deal, you begin to see a redirecting of the Democratic Party on the vector that it's on today. In the United States, we don't have a viable working class party. So the working class, for the most part, and the labor, uh, what little labor uh, uh, movement leaders we do have, I'm talking about organized labor now, they've thrown in with the Democratic Party. So black people in the 1960s were seeking black political power. The vehicle was the Democratic Party. Many blacks were elected, many African-Americans were elected. And at a certain point, you know, they began to say, well, we can, we don't always have to go behind a white member of the Democratic Party. We can put up our own person to run for president. And you saw that with Shirley Chisholm in 1972, even before 72. You know, there were African-Americans that ran for, for president. Many people don't know Frederick Douglass ran for president in the 19th century, you know, with the political, it wasn't the Democratic Party, it was another party. But anyway, the point I'm making is, is that this liberal wing of the, of the Democratic Party pushes forward when it has the strength to do so. And it had the strength to do so in 1988. In fact, 1984, Jesse Jackson ran twice. He ran in 1984, he ran on 1988. His, his platform was very much uh, in the vein of, I won't say identical to, but in the vein of Bernie Sanders' platform of 2016. And so again, whereas you had that pushing forward of the, the liberal wing in the 1980s, and then it fell back, it pushed forward again in 2016 with Bernie Sanders, only this time, I would say not just the liberal elements of the Democratic Party, but progressive elements because um, Sanders' platform was qualitatively different uh, than previous platforms of, of uh, uh, insurgent candidates within the Democratic Party. And, and I guess the market feature, the, the place where you would start would be Medicare for all. Even in the liberal uh, platforms that have been put before by other candidates, they did not call for the complete overhaul of the healthcare system. But uh, Sanders did in 2016. And what Bernie Sanders served a very 
uh, important purpose with his campaign of 2016 and his partial campaign of 2020. He showed demonstrably that there are large numbers of people, very large numbers of people in the United States that will support a progressive platform. They will support Medicare for all, doubling the minimum wage, abolishing student debt, free college, ending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Green New Deal, probably most 50% plus of the country is ready for that and want that. It's they really being held back by the leadership of the party, which is still in the hands of the, the corporate Democrats and the establishment Democrats. And one thing that the primary process really exposed as well was a generational divide um, in US yes. politics right now. I know Bernie Sanders overwhelmingly yes. won the younger vote. And then yes. um, he didn't do as well with older voters, especially older yes. African-American voters yes. in the South. Um, I was yes. wondering if you can speak to this generational divide, but also how a progressive campaign can overcome that and what you think needs to be done right. in the future. Well, here's my, here's my analysis in a capsule that the progressive movement must continue to push forward within the electoral arena. Many more defeats, but we must continue to push forward because we can't have victory unless we push forward. And if we don't push forward, we actually fall backwards. And, you know, I was very disappointed. I've yet to hear what I would consider an adequate explanation as to why Senator Sanders stopped his campaign. I mean, we were with him whether he was going to win or not. We're with him. We're with him because we were representing not only him, but representing the movement, which included those people in the Democratic Party who support that platform. You know, and I think it was a mistake to, to fall back, you know, the way we did. But um, you have to understand, we're on the long road to empowerment for the progressive movement in this country. And if people get in this business, there's gonna be a lot of defeats. I, I don't care whether you go third party, whether you go inside the Democratic Party, outside the Democratic Party, it's gonna take a while for us to get enough support until we can actually start winning elections. And between me, you and the gatepost, winning the election is not the most important thing. The most important thing is building up our political power. For instance, I'm running for U.S. Senate. My goal is to win the election. But if I don't win the election, after July 7th, I and the People's Organization for Progress will be politically stronger than we were before we went into the process. Yes, did we achieve our goal? No, we lost the election, yes. But we're actually stronger. When I was in high school, I was a long distance runner. You know why I was a long distance runner? Because I was so slow, they wouldn't put me in any other event. I couldn't run fast. I couldn't run the 100, the quarter mile. I couldn't even run the mile. They put me in the two mile because there was nobody else in the, on the team that wanted to run two miles. And for two years, 
I lost every race I ran. It wasn't until my junior year that I started winning. And in my senior year, I became state champion, group one school state champion and record holder. Why do I say that? To illustrate the fact that I had to lose 40 races before I could actually start winning. And that's the mindset that the progressive movement must have today, that we're willing to take the defeats if in fact the defeats make us stronger and move us forward on the path to ultimate victory. We must have, call it what you want, call it progressive, radical, working class, we must have that kind of movement in America. And we must have that kind of movement that has demonstrable political power amongst the people. When this race is over, when this race for Senate is over, I haven't run for office in 30 years. The last time I ran for elected office was in 1987. I ran on a ticket with the civil rights attorney, Arthur Kenoy. you look him up. He's, He's not well known, but he played a very valuable role in the labor movement and in the civil rights movement. He ended his career as a law teacher, professor of law at Rutgers University, but we ran as independents. I mean, in the general election, not as not, not, not um, uh, insurgents in the primary, but independents in the general. So for 30 years, I haven't run for office. So when this campaign for US Senate is over, I will be able to see how much strength I have in the electoral arena and what my weaknesses are and where I need to, where I need to improve. You know, there must be an electoral expression of the progressive movement. We must have a multidimensional strategy. We must have a strategy outside the electoral arena and we also must have a strategy inside the electoral arena. Those are all the people that are running on the slogan, not me, us, that are on the ballot across the state of New Jersey. There's literally 150 of us between the, the delegates for Bernie Sanders and all of us who are running for all the other offices. If people really wanna see an end to police brutality, then they need to vote for the candidates who are committed to doing everything necessary to end police brutality. I'm sorry to go on so long. You should interrupt me whenever. No, thank you for that. It's really, it really fascinating to hear your perspective. So I guess what I want to ask now is the other side of that coin. So you say the progressive movement must have uh, a stake in electoral politics and do its best to win over the hearts and minds of the voting public. Obviously, given the moment we're in right now, given the coronavirus pandemic, which has shockingly disproportionately impacted uh, people of color and working class people all across the country, right. and the Black Lives Matter movement, do you think that these mobilizations, these protests will translate into conventional party politics? Do you think they'll translate into progressive votes with people like Jamal Bowman running in New York next week? You've got Charles Booker in Kentucky, your, your race obviously for Senate in New Jersey. Do you think that this will be something that those candidates will be able to place themselves at the center of and really ride a wave? Or do you think that the Democratic leadership response that we're seeing at the moment, you know, with them taking a, taking a knee, you've got Mitt Romney, obviously Republican, saying Black Lives Matter, but it's very much almost a tokenism response. Do you think you're going to get greater political apathy with, you know, the Joe Bidens of the world? Or do you think that these progressive candidates will see a boost from the movements that we're seeing at the moment? 
to give a short and direct answer, I think that these protests will help those progressive candidates that are running. I think the protests here in New Jersey will help me because people know, you know, those who do know about me, because there's still a lot of people that don't know about me, but those who do know, know that I've been fighting police brutality. And all of a sudden, you know, the position I've been taking for 40 years uh, is now eminently clear and people say, well, yeah, well, he must have been right, you know, all those years previously. So I think that the protests will help. I think they will help get the candidates more votes. Whether they will help the candidates to the point that they'll win or lose the election, I cannot say. But I do definitely believe that the protests will help those progressive candidates that are running. But the protests are helpful and positive in and of themselves, even if they don't translate into more votes for people running for office. Because, you know, uh, Pelosi and company wouldn't be taking the knee and other people wouldn't be doing the other things they're doing if it wasn't for these protests. They're only doing these things because they see the fire is all around them. They're like, well, let's take this breath so people know we're not the enemy, <laughs> you know? I mean, you got the police chiefs taking the knee now. You know, you got the NFL saying that the players who protested were right. You know, they wouldn't be saying that if there weren't people in the street in all 50 states. That's what's making them do it. And one issue that we're focusing a lot is when we're looking at the U.S. right now is the, is the housing crisis that many yes. Americans are facing. And especially yes. with the coronavirus, um, many yes. in the Democratic leadership have failed to enact a rent or mortgage moratorium, for example, and many people yes. are struggling just to pay their basic everyday bills. I was yes. wondering um, if you do make it into the Senate, what kind of policies would you fight for in terms of, in terms of guaranteeing affordable housing to, to all Americans? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is either sponsor or co-sponsor, because I know there are others uh, in the House and in the Senate who want to do the same, uh, sponsor a bill for a national housing program. That should be one part of our national jobs program. Uh, we need to put forward, when, when, when um, the country was faced with a depression in the 1930s, Roosevelt put forward the New Deal. Uh, we need to put forward a new New Deal, or call it a 21st century New Deal, a multidimensional jobs program, with one part of it being housing construction. Because housing construction can create a lot of jobs, especially if we're trying to construct, say, a million or more new units of housing across the country, affordable housing for people you know, affordable based on the, the realistic demographics of the, of the areas of the country that are impoverished and not some artificial market rate of affordability that the people who actually live in those areas cannot afford. So we, we need a national housing construction program to construct, say, anywhere from a million to four million new units of affordable housing for people, you know, and not affordable based on the market rate, but affordable based on the incomes of the working poor in this country. 
So uh, putting forward that kind of bill will be one of the first things that we'll do. I'm conscious that we've got already gone over time. So I just wanted to ask you a really quick final question. Um, and yes. that's the fact that I'm here right now based in London. Uh, I was down at- Oh, the you're Black in London? Earth. I'm in you're London. In London? <laughs> yeah. They didn't tell me you're in London? Oh, <laughs> man. I didn't know that. I'd shoot if I didn't know you were in London. I would have put in, I wouldn't have said demonstrations across the country, demonstrations around the world. You all have had huge demonstrations in, uh, in London and people in Paris and in uh, Germany and all over. It, it's really heartening. I want to thank all my comrades over there, even though I don't know their names, because your turning out in numbers in your country inspires and strengthens and mobilizes us to fight even harder in this country. Thank you. Thank you. And we want to thank you so much for, for spending time with us. And thank you for all of the work that you've done. I've been following your work for a while now. And it's your real inspirational figure for, for me here. And I'm sure for Aaron as well. So thank you so much for joining us uh, on this on this show, Lawrence Ham. Great. Thank, thank you so much. Power to the people. Thank you for listening to this Our Voices podcast from Open Democracy. If you enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen, head to iTunes, subscribe and leave us a review. Open Democracy is an independent global media platform that is only possible because of your kind donations. To find out more or to make a donation, head to opendemocracy.net.